Hello, nothing new under the sun listeners. Uh, I'd like to apologise for the very, very long delay in getting this last episode, uh, episode 6 of season 1, out to you and on the airwaves uh, due to a variety of technical difficulties, um, a bit of busyness both at work and at home and uh, probably a little bit of laziness it's taking us a while to get this up and running. Um, I hope you enjoy, hope you've enjoyed the the first season. Gareth and I will have a brand new season of Nothing New Under the Sun uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks so stay tuned for that. Um, Again we hope you enjoy this last episode and will be willing to come back and listen to season two when it's available. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the Nothing New Under the Sun podcast, our sixth and final episode in our first season, and hopefully the first of many. As usual, I'm joined by my partner in crime and biblical expert, Gareth Tyndall, as we look at the Bible's current and timeless value. Welcome back, Gareth. Thank you, Dane. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, we'll start today uh, by looking at something really uh, minor, the search for meaning. Um <laughs> And many of the topics we've covered previously have been variations uh, on the idea of, a, of meaningfulness in life. And uh, we spoke of rites of passage. We've looked at meditation and prayer and how they can bring uh, meaning to our life. We've looked at our authentic selves. We've looked at relationships, bullying, which you know might not really feel that meaningfulness one. But Gareth, it's a meaningful book, the, the Bible. Um, maybe the most meaningful book in, in history. Um, certainly for cultures that are rooted in Europe or have been heavily influenced by by Europe. Mm. Um, yet here we have this wealth of guidance, 3,000 years or more of guidance and pathways to follow at our fingertips, and yet we find people increasingly detached from a meaningful life. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous German philosopher, declared that God was dead um, but did this supposed death precipitate the end of meaningfulness in people's lives? It's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd say certainly not. Uh, I think people have, since uh, Nietzsche, have continued to pursue meaning. Um, I don't think that people have gone set out to live deliberately uh, meaningless lives. Uh, whether they've been successful in finding that meaning... Uh, I'd argue that apart from God, uh, no, they haven't. Um, and it's interesting that that little quote from Nietzsche, it's used often to sort of say, well, as the uh, the, the atheist catch cry uh, and uh, the death knell uh, of Christianity. And um, the interesting thing about it, of course, is that uh, he was not really addressing Christians when he said that. He was really addressing those from a secular perspective, you know, from those who were trying to develop a philosophical worldview um, without God. He said it was actually kind of effectively a sham to try and say there is no God, as in there is no bench, eternal benchmark for good and bad, and yet still hold people to the categories of an absolute 
good and bad and right and wrong uh, and truth and lie. Um, you know, he even said judgments, value judgments concerning life for or against can in the last resort never be true. Um, and so and then he'll go on and talk about how those who have a utilitarian kind of view uh, of life, uh, which, you know, was at the time was Jerry Bentham and those kind of guys was very popular. Um, he would argue, you know, how can you promote unselfish behavior uh, using selfishness as the motivation? Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to, to touch on Nietzsche, uh, but whether he was necessarily opposing um, the Christian worldview uh, as his primary focus, uh, I think is not necessarily the case. He's probably more having a go at the secular search for meaning without God. Yeah, and I think from you know from what I've read and and, and from what I I've seen other people say, um, it's a phrase "God God is dead" that's been completely taken out of context, and mm -hmm. um, this idea that we may have discovered as many of the what's of life as we as we think we can um, through the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, but the why is still very important, and and his declaration, the death of God, was more a warning that mm. things might not be so great if we continue to act that way. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Now, um, I think one of the the most fascinating intellectuals to come to prominence over the particularly the past two or three years, uh, when it comes to meaning, is Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, probably at the um, height of his prominence is his book called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Uh, it's an international bestseller, particularly among young men. Yeah. Um, and Peterson himself sees this popularity and he's, you know, he's a bit of a YouTube sensation and he sold millions of copies of this book in many languages. Mm. He thinks it's almost exclusively due to his message of responsibility and, and taking on a meaningful life about not being so material, um, and just taking on some responsibility. Um, now, I, th I think you've read the book, Gareth. Um, I, I read it early last year. Mm. Um, some of his rules include things such as, you know, standing up straight with your shoulders back, being confident in the world. Mm. Um, importantly, do what is meaningful, not what is expedient, which I suppose, you know, we could argue that that's been the story of the last 200 <laughs> years, yes. um, trying to make our lives easier rather than meaningful, mm -hmm. um, and setting your house in order before criticising the world. So they're popular mess messages. You know, we I don't think you might be able to argue against what he's saying mm. um, and ag against some of the people that he might attract, mm. but the fact that he's really popular probably speaks to something. What is that? Yeah, I think that's that's true. Yeah, that there, there's an undeniable kind of common senseness about him that I think people have been uh, appreciative of. Um, but I think yeah, you're also right in that um, he has probably also become across as as jarring and seemingly controversial, um, perhaps because of the simplicity of what he's he's put forward. Uh, I, you know, I, I, my understanding of him began from that Kathy Newman YouTube video, you know, and so it was only after watching that video where um, it was pretty much this uh, little uh, power play between, uh, you know, a more progressive side of politics and a conservative side of politics where um, 
for once it seemed uh, that uh, the level-headed and calm and collected kind of response came from the conservative side and he kind of showed the internal logic uh, or failure of logic in the way that say Kathy Newman was particularly treating him uh, in this idea of you know freedom of speech might cause offence but it effectively he was arguing that you only let that go one way and not and not vice versa. And so it was only after that that I then discovered that actually this guy's been around for a long, long time and has written a book prior, many many years prior, and had this just this huge uh, database of uh, particularly YouTube videos um, where it seems that uh, his ability to kind of interrogate that progressive zeitgeist doesn't seem to be his main focus, but it does seem to be this inevitable byproduct because, uh, you know, his, this idea of rather than attacking big business and, um, you know, corporations and structures in our society that hold us back, uh, he's able to sort of hone in on the individual in the particular and say that actually real change begins with you, you know. And, that, and that, that's the rhetoric that we always hear from those in positions of leadership, but often it's just rhetoric. Uh, and I think yeah. that the thing about Peterson has been that he's actually kind tried to show us how to do that, to renovate that individual responsibility in your life. Yeah. I think, you know, if you, if you, you dig down with him, he, he probably, well, I think he definitely is classical liberal yes. in terms of his, his philosophy. Um, but in his, um, in, you know, in that previous book, you mentioned maps of meaning. Yep. Um, and you look at some of the, he, he tapes his lectures at university. I think he's done that for a long time. There's hours and hours on, mm. on, uh, on YouTube. Um, I think what he's kind of got to is that rights are really, really important, but they are the other side of that responsibility mm. coin. And he tries mm. to give them equal weight, mm. um, mm. in terms of that meaningful life. If, if you want to fully use the rights that you've got, the best way to do that is by taking on a lot of responsibilities for as, well, as well. So yes, almost yes. that freedom in discipline kind of philosophy. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we go back to that set your house in order before criticising the world. You know, mm-hmm. that, that could almost, it's almost straight from the, the Bible in terms of, you know, the the moat in your brother's eye or neighbour's eye mm-hmm. while you've got a log in your own, it's mm-hmm. almost, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he, he will talk about that fairly extensively that you want to change the world, well, I think he says, clean up your room and change yourself. If, if you can't get that in order, well, what hope have you got of doing any real difference anywhere else? That's right. And I, I think what makes him appealing in that is that he seems to, it, it comes from this, his, his empirical observations of what he's seen in his clinical practice and how he said that when people have done these, these things, it has led to not just renovations in their own life and in their, their realms of responsibility, but has had broader flow and effects for society and so it he makes uh real progress and moral improvement seem uh, achievable uh because you just start with yourself um and it's methodical uh, and it also seems to speak to exponential benefits um and, and that was one of the things when i watched him on q a recently uh, where someone in the in the crowd was, you know, saying that you keep going on about these individual, you know, individual responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. But how is that actually going to affect the big problems like 
the holes in the hole in the ozone layer or whatever it was that this this person in the crowd was talking about these bigger broader social problems and he was able to bring it back and say well those bigger broader social problems are achieved and dealt with by a series a collective of individuals and if those individuals um will not first and foremost take their own treat their own integrity uh with the utmost respect then how can they expect to treat the planet with any integrity and i think that has really struck a chord with people yeah i I think his experience and you know if you haven't heard of jordan peterson he's a a psychology professor but he's also Mm. a clinician he's spent 30 years in practice yes um and that idea that this works i think for people and he sees a lot of people whose lives are out of control and you know the the antidote to chaos Mm. um one thing that i think is really powerful in his message is that you have some control it might only be over the colour of your bedspread or whether your shoes are put away. Mm. Um, but once you start to do little things like that, mm. it leads to mm. greater levels of control. And the more control you feel you have in your life, I imagine the ha- happier, healthier you are. Um, I think uh, Einstein, you know, a famous physics, I mean, we know who we Einstein know who is. is. Yeah, um, he was asked what's the greatest force in the universe and he didn't say gravity or something like that. He said compound interest. <laughs> because it's got that potential to continue to grow. And I think the, these small habits can work the same way as compound interest. And that would that's part of Peterson's message, that you start small and you do a little bit extra each day. Yes. You compare yourself to who you are, um, who you were yesterday rather than who everyone else is. Um, and that's that way to make that continuous change for the better. Mm. Mm. Now, he was in Australia recently. Um, you know, you mentioned he was on ABC's Q&A. Um, and I think around about that time I shared with you a, a little article from a, a Christian magazine, an online magazine, that was talking about Peterson's popularity and um, particularly in comparison to, to churches. We spoke about kind of the decline of church attendance at, you know, at times over this podcast. Yeah. Um, and this, this person had posited the idea that, well, Peterson's popular because he does what a lot of churches don't do and that he stands for something that gives people meaning in their life. Mm. And I think there's a really good, uh, you know, he does his psychology stuff dovetails. Um, he's got a lecture series that he started doing last year, 17 parts to about 40 hours of commentary on the psychological significance of Genesis and those early biblical stories. Wow. Um, and they, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're quite intriguing. Um, they're very entertaining, but remarkably, 25 to 30 million people have viewed these YouTube clips yeah. that, and they go for two and a half hours. It's usually him speaking for two hours and then a half an hour of, of Q and A with the audience. Um, that tells me there's a massive market for what he's saying. Yes. Yes. And, and the, you know, the remarkable thing about that, of course, in that, that instance is, <clears throat> just the sheer volume of engagement with scripture that's taking place in those podcasts um, and is probably, uh, I would argue, uh, that there are a significant number of churches now where there is a great dearth of uh, reflection on the scriptures. Uh, And so there doesn't seem to be that zeal uh, and that sense of authority um, that the scriptures bear that has has characterised Christianity um, for so many centuries in the past. Uh, and that's interesting that 
that he has generated such a huge following um, of watching those videos. And yet you're right, that hasn't necessarily seen, hasn't matriculated to a massive influx of people going to church. Yeah. And, and look, if you were to, if you're a betting man and someone said to you three years ago, look, I've, I've got this great idea. I'm going to sit and talk for two hours about Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and how it's useful for people. Mm. And I'm going to get, you know, 1.7 million people are going to sit down and watch it. You'd, it'd be, you'd be laughed out of town. Correct. Wouldn't you? Correct. Yet, you know, he's tapped into something really, really important and that people are probably starving starving for. And mm. yet, I, I remember listening to, to them last year. I took a road trip to Perth, as you do every now and then with your, uh, your L-plate driving son. And while he was having his naps, I'd listen to one of them in a, in a two-hour stretch. And mm. they are they were extremely interesting. And for me growing up outside the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. okay, and, and we spoke before about how this podcast is you and I conversing in these ways to make me more familiar with them, mm. I, I found it, I, I wondered why I'd never heard some of these stories in terms of, I knew the stories. I know about Adam and Eve. I know about Cain and Abel. I know Noah. I know you know bits and pieces of of Abraham, mm. but not what those stories were really, really saying, or how they could be interpreted. I, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and, and I'd say that um, your, as you admitted there, you know, you know of Adam and Eve. You know of Cain, Abel, and Noah. I would say that that's just going to become even less and less the case. You know, as, as I teach Year Seven Christian Studies every year and we do this general introduction to the whole Old Testament over the year, uh, their familiarity with the content and names just dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. Uh, and so um, in that respect, much of what Peterson is tapping into seems very new and revolutionary. There's these, you know, like there's this, this, these stories that have just not been charted before um, and yet, of course, you know, just a cursory glance through history shows that they've um, undergirded uh, so much of Western development. Um, and, and I think that that's part of the reason why he's been successful, is he's kind of made all things new again in some respects. Uh, but also, too, I think his approach to the scriptures uh, is one that makes them palatable. Uh, and he cuts, in, in many ways, he cuts out... Uh, the offence of the scriptures, or he will treat them as this source of great wisdom, which they are. I don't deny that. This whole podcast is built upon that. He'll treat them as his great source of wisdom, but maybe not necessarily treat them with the sense that this is uh, a divine utterance and that this is um, something, these words carry uh, a pending authority over you. He'll rather treat them as these very significant um, stories, myths. I think myths is probably a good way to use the understanding, not in the sense that it's it's made up, but that idea of establishing um, these timeless He, he calls them meta-narratives. You know, right, they're, they're, right. they're useful for, for people because fundamentally they are part of who we are. Yes, that's um, right. And I, I guess it, the big... Big point of difference, I think, between you and him would be you see the you know the reverential authority of these stories because they are from God, mm. whereas he deconstructs them and says, "Well, mm. we've created God from these stories because they are so damn useful yeah. and they contain so much wisdom." Yeah, and it's fascinating too, isn't it, that he's been able to even just market the idea of 
these are our meta narratives. Like that is just that's the antithesis of the postmodern view. There are no overarching meta narratives. In fact, meta narratives are oppressive and suppressive and um, spread injustice. And yet, when you've gone a generation or two or three through that um, rejection of meta narratives, uh, there's a reversion to them. Um, and you know, the mainly I think because that postmodern uh, milieu, if you like, effectively leaves people without any moorings and leaves people in a sense of chaos, which Peterson will talk about a lot, about restoring order in chaos. And, and that's actually you know, a, a, a fundamentally theological view. Like the, the, the story of creation in Genesis is all about God bringing order out of the chaos. You know? and, and the, the prevailing view of the ancient Near Eastern peoples, like the Canaanites, etc., etc., was that the world was chaos and the gods were capricious and they were out to get you. And, um, you know, you didn't know when and where and why they would act the way they did. And yet, so the creation story is this massive antidote that says, no, God is a God of, of order. And uh, his creation is set in a way that he says is good and it, it reflects his character and it's, it's full of love and care and compassion for people. Uh, and I, I think that, you see Peterson touch, see that. He sees an order emerging from these. Um, and so that he, but he, he'll often then maybe reduce it to just a psychoanalytical kind of analysis of the order that emerges rather than he, he just, he'll broach that seeming void out there of touching into the mystery of God or the, the spiritual realm. And it kind of pervades the way he speaks. But does he actually say, you know, here is God speaking to us and we should listen. He doesn't go that far. No, he doesn't. He'll say something as in God is uh, a judgmental father in the future. Mm -hmm. So these things, okay. are, these things are set up. So, um, you know, if you do certain things, the future will work out better. And, and that's kind of almost, it's almost a pantheism, I suppose, yeah, in, yeah. in that respect. And I know he, he has been asked many times, you know, do you believe in God? And he says, well, that's my private um, yes, opinion. I don't really need to be and spreading him, that to everyone. And I've heard him kind of say that he he finds the um, the question reductionistic, in that it kind of he knows that if whatever answer he gives, people will just box him into a corner. And I think he wants to say, um, my observation of you know for my clinical practice, um, much of that he would probably say can emerge and be observed entirely independently from God and a belief in God. And yet he'll also say, but isn't it fascinating how so much of what God says to us, whether he'd use that language, so much of what he said in God's word in the Bible also feeds into that clinical practice. But then he doesn't want to uh, sully his clinical observations by saying they're merely, uh, you know, um, theological musings. Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's almost one of those chicken and, and egg arguments then. Um, yes. You know, if, if you are a believer in God in all his uh, omnipotence, mm -hmm. um, then you would say, well, these stories make psychological sense because that's how God designed people to be. Um, and if you, on the other side of the fence, you might, might say, well, this is, you know, God makes sense in this respect because that's how we are psychologically interpreting mm. the chaotic world that mm. we emerge mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. So anyway, very interesting. Gareth, we might take a bit of a, a break now. That's kind of the meatier part of our uh, of our podcast this time. We'll get into something a little bit lighter after a short break. 
Okay, welcome back to the uh, second half of episode six. Now, Gareth, our podcast starts with Turn, Turn, Turn by The Birds, a song from the 60s, um, which was your suggestion as our theme song. Uh, I'd heard the song before, and like most of my pop culture references, which were pre-1980s, it was through The Simpsons, um, a little scene where I think Bart gets his first job, and he does a little internal soliloquy to camera with the Wonder Years style, Daniel Stern narrating about him growing up and becoming a, a man and uh, halfway through his little voiceover, Homer yells at him for staring into nothingness. Um, so, and I am a big fan of The Simpsons. It could probably be a whole season of podcasts on The Simpsons and Christianity, maybe. Could be. You could rival Jordan Peterson, I think, with him. You could talk about The Certainly, Simpsons. yes. Two-hour specials. Mm. But why did you suggest that? 60s era song for our podcast, Gareth? Well, I chose it because uh, the words it's themselves uh, are not uh, from the birds. In fact, Peter Seeger, who was in the birds, he took those words straight out of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, um, where, you know, it has those series of um, antitheses. You know, there's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, Time to laugh, a time to weep, time to mourn, time to dance, and the, what about throwing? Time to throw stones and time to to gather stones. Um, so yeah, those those words were put to music in the nineteen sixties uh, in that great little song. I mean, I, I think of it from the scene where um, Forrest Gump, where he leaves Jenny at the rally, isn't it? I think yeah, it plays yeah. as he drives off on the bus, or she drives off on the bus. Um, but it's interesting when Peter Seeger was asked about writing that song, he said, "I don't read the Bible that often." I leaf through it occasionally, and I'm amazed by the foolishness at times and the wisdom at other times. I call it the greatest book of folklore ever given. Not that there isn't a lot of wisdom in it. You can trace the history of people poetically. So he was, um, he said, oh, yeah, there's a bit of wisdom in there. I don't mind it. It's a great book of folklore. And so I felt like making a song out of it. But um, the whole thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, which is where we also get the title from our podcast from, um, is about living with the grain of the universe uh, and knowing the times and the seasons. You know, it, it, it is a little bit Jordan Peterson in, in that like, that idea. He's all about you know live within the order uh, of of creation, find the order, live with it, uh, and um, there'll be peace and prosperity for you. Um, but yeah, it does have those dichotomies, you know, a time to, to give birth and a time to die, which kind of suggests that everything in between those times is has its own time and place as well. Important as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not just the extremes, yeah. Um, and so I thought it was a good one to look at because so much of our podcast uh, has been about trying to take the wisdom of Scripture and apply it to all different times and seasons uh, and show its pertinence to uh, our our lives. And, yeah, that there really is nothing new. It's That's right. It, it's happened before. That's um, exactly right. And we talk about Peterson, I guess, you know, we, we spoke earlier about how people are kind of mesmerised and intrigued by these stories that he's, he's telling. Yes. He hasn't made them up. He hasn't gone and said this is an original work of Peterson fiction mm-hmm. or analysis. All he's doing is saying, okay, he's leafing through, you know, people that have written about the Bible mm. um, for a thousand years, two thousand years, and he's trying to draw out and see what the significance is of the of those stories. There's, there's yeah. nothing 
There's nothing. He hasn't told anyone anything new, and no. yet he's wildly popular. That's right. That's right. And you know, and and you know, after that little list of those dichotomous kind of phrases, um, the writer in the Ecclesiastes says in verse eleven of chapter three that. God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in our hearts, but man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. And so you can see how when we think about Jordan Peterson and the way he talks about these stories from Scripture and he finds um, their parallel in our lives, you can see how they're it's clear from what the writer to Ecclesiastes says that there is something different about human beings. Unlike plants and animals, they have a sense of eternity in our hearts, a sense that there is something transcendent uh, beyond us that we search for and long for. In, 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 in Sometimes in great doses we long for it, other times we feel like there's just not a need for it. We often maybe just live in a sense of, you know, necessity and just going through the, the motions of, of existence. But I wonder whether there, there, is a, there is a reason why people have shown a great affinity with him is because he is just pulling at that transcendent part of humanity that says there is some kind of meaning that you can find. There is some sense of purpose that you can uh, find. I don't think he would argue that he's found the meaning of life as such, but no. he says there is... Something out there. There's a framework that maybe we can use at least to get us closer. Yeah, yeah. But the, the frustrating part, of course, is, is there in that, in that passage where it says that he said a ter- God said eternity in our hearts, uh, but we cannot discover the work that God has done from beginning to end. So we know there is there's some kind of truth out there that, that holds eternity in perspective and in tension with uh, meaning, but we can't work it out on our own. Uh, and that's why, you know, in... The New Testament, we're told that that sense of having an understanding of eternity comes through Jesus. You know, 2 Timothy 1, uh, Paul says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So there has been a plan since before time, before history, for those who trust in Jesus Christ to receive Jesus Christ. And when they know Jesus, then they understand their eternal purpose. Yeah, I I like that. That's one of the things that I never picked up on um, when when we talk about Jesus. Jesus isn't just a New Testament figure. He's a a New Testament person, I suppose. But, but, you know, one of the things which really, you know, made me, me, me think was... Jesus, that the Trinity was there at the beginning. So creation was Trinitarian. Yes. And yes, Jesus turned up you know, three and a half thousand years ago and fulfilled that promise. But he, him as the word, he's the word almost from, from the very beginning. Yeah. So he has been there since the start. And again, to use our theme of our podcast, nothing new under the sun. His appearance wasn't new. It wasn't a brand new thing. It was just... Him manifesting himself yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, creation begins with God speaking his word. Let there be light. And so God's word is spoken. By the power of his word, there is light, that illumination of truth. Uh, and then we're told, as you've already touched on, Dane, that in John's gospel, we're told that who was, who is that uh, powerful 
creative word of God that has been revealed uh, to the word, world, well, it's Jesus come in the flesh. Uh, and so that powerful creative word that God s- spoke existence into, uh, a creation into, into existence, um, is that same word that becomes into a fleshly existence uh, in Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's why that makes sense, not just of, you're yeah, right, of that little New Testament time where he's here on earth, but of God's grand purposes. They're, they all are fulfilled in Jesus. There is nothing new under the S-U-N and under the S-O-N. Yeah, and again, it's just, we've talked about those iterations and, you know, different scales of things happening as the, you know, Old Testament and the New Testament come along, but that is bending the whole arc yeah. back to where it's started. Yeah. And I just found that really remarkable and mm. one of the things that blew my mind. That's when, when you think about that, it's just, and again, whether whether you are 100% a believer, just to think about that makes the whole document, uh, it, it makes it really interesting. It does. It does. Yeah. And and there are, you know, there's never an uh, an end to um, what we can seek to want to know about Jesus Christ. You know, we can always want to want to know how to live more like him and grow further in Christ-likeness. And yet at the same time, everything we need to know about Jesus Christ uh, has been revealed to us already. You know, Paul, Paul, that great apostle, um, even he, when he talks about, you know, what's his desire, he just says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and so somehow attaining to his likeness in his death. Like he, all Paul wants to know is the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and taken away his sins. Uh, and that's all we need to know, and that's what sets us off on a quest to know Jesus all the more. And if we take that quest, our life's going to have meaning. Correct. Very much so. Eternal meaning. All right. Okay, well, we might leave it there. Um, Thanks to all the people who have listened over the last six to seven months or however long we've, we've taken to draw out six episodes. Yeah. Uh, Gareth, once again, thank you very much for your knowledge and your guidance and your willingness to, to share and, and illuminate my uh, my understanding of the Bible and, and its meanings. Um, hopefully, we will be back with the second season at a later date. Um, not sure all the themes that will be in that, but we will probably take a take a tact and try and stick with that for, for six or seven episodes. Mm. Thank you, Dane. Yeah, I've appreciated the the journey with you. I've appreciated your honesty and uh, your willingness to just want to really nut things over with Jesus. And as I said, anyone who wants to sit down and talk to me about Jesus, you know, I'll take that opportunity, even if it gets broadcast widely on the internet. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you.